Um, let, let's turn to the Word. This morning we're continuing our way through the book of Judges, and we're going to be in Judges uh, chapter 12, and we're going to finish up this morning the story of Jephthah. Last week, uh, Peter, at a feverish pace, ran through two whole chapters of Jephthah, and this morning we just have a few verses of him. Um, so we're going to slow down a, a bit, and last week, of course, we uh, saw while God used him, um, used him to overcome the Ammonites, um, at the same time, some tragic things happened in his life. He made that incredibly tragic vow with his daughter, something certainly uh, not to be praised. And we're going to continue to see that, that Jephthah this morning continues to have struggles, um, to say the least, in his, his life. So let's look at the word now. Judges chapter 12, we're going to look at the whole thing uh, this morning. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I, I took my life in my hand, and I crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And he said, No. And they said, Then say Shibboleth. And they said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And the time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell, and Japheth judged Israel six years. Then Japheth the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. And after him, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave a marriage outside of his clan and 30 daughters. He brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel for seven years. Then Ibzon died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel for ten years. And then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajan in the land of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons, thirty grandsons, who rode seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Um, would you cause it to come alive before us? Uh, we thank you that your word is alive before us this morning. Would you use, uh, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be at work applying the truths of it to our heart. Might we be convicted of sin this morning? Might we be reminded of our Savior this morning? And might we come running to the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've heard, Winter Olympics are coming up, and the four-man Jamaican bobsled team is back. First time since 1998. Um, some of you may also remember that movie. Uh, cool Running, starring John Candy, um, about the Jamaican bobsled team back in the in 90s. And uh, John Candy played the coach of the Jamaican bobsled team. He had won multiple gold medals in the bobsled, and now he was coming along the Jamaicans. Now he had kind of 
Um, he had got caught cheating years before, and now he's kind of reformed, and he's better, and he's trying to, to do better as he coaches this Jamaican bobsled team. One of the, the, the team leader, Doris, comes up to him, and he says, hey, coach, I have a question to ask you. Um, you don't have to answer it, I know, but w- would you mind? And John Candy, the coach's character, says, you, you, you want to know why I cheated, right? And he said, yes, I do. And so the coach says this, that's a fair question. It's quite simple, really. I had to win. You see, Doris, I made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning no matter what. As we're going to see this morning, as we dive into chapter 12 here, uh, the Ephraimites are a whole lot like that. They're a group of people that just have to keep on winning. And they have to win no matter what. They want the prestige. They want the honor. They want the glory for themselves. You see verse 1. Here they come. They, they come and they're, they're called to arms like they're coming for battle across the Jordan to meet up with Jephthah. And they say to Jephthah, why did you cross over and fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, this isn't the first time the Ephraimites have actually done this. If you, if you remember back in Gideon's day, they said something almost identical with Gideon. Do you remember what they said then? Chapter 8, what is this that you have done to us? Not call us when you went to fight against Midian? What, what's going on? The, the Ephraimites, they seem to have this recurring problem. What is it? As Peter mentioned a few weeks back, uh, these tribes, and Ephraim in particular, they seem to have a personality. And Ephraim's personality seems one of their issues is pride. They're very consumed with their own glory. They want the glory for themselves. They want Ephraim to be high and and lifted up. They think much of themselves. And so they come uh, to, to, to Jephthah, and what do they say? They say, why did you not call us to fight against the Ammonites? You know, last week we, we saw uh, Jephthah defeat the Ammonites, and he was able to feed them because the Lord gave them into their hand. But when Ephraim, when they hear about this, they don't celebrate. Oh, we've been freed of them. What do they do? They get mad. They get upset because they wanted part of the victory for themselves, and maybe even realistically, they wanted the whole victory for themselves, right? They, they want to be able to say, look at us, look at we did. And they are so upset that they didn't get a piece of the glory that what do they say to Jephthah? We will burn your house over with fire. I mean, that, that's pretty angry. They, they've come, they've, they've come armed, ready to defeat them. They come threatening to burn down the house. Now they're bur- threatening to burn down the house. This is the guy who was just tragically and in a horrible way, as we heard last week, sacrificed his daughter. And now it's like to put even more salt on the wind. We're going to just burn your house down. How's Jephthah respond? Verse 2. He says to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you didn't save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hand. I crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now, it's interesting. Did Jephthah ever call them? If you, if you read back, and if you remember from last week, we, we don't ever remember Jephthah calling, calling the, the Ephraimites to come and join him in battle, and we're left kind of wondering, commentators are split, did he ever call them? It wouldn't be out of characteristic, I don't think, for him to maybe not be telling the truth here. Maybe like you saying, 
well, I sent you the email. It must have gotten left in cyberspace somewhere. I'm sure none of you have ever done anything such as that before. Um, and so he says to them, a very pointed question, I think a very helpful question. So why have you, why have you come to me to fight against me? Why are you fighting against me? And of course, what's the answer? The answer we mentioned earlier, it's part of their characteristic. It's their problem of pride. That's why Ephraim is out that day. They can't be bothered celebrating other people's victories. They want the victory for themselves. As one commentator uh, puts it, they're strutting around with their wounded self-importance. For them, it's all about them. And it's interesting, as you think back to Gideon, you you look now with Jephthah, they're, they're nowhere when they're needed. But, but suddenly, after the victory, after it's won, you know, here they come, and why didn't you call us? They weren't anywhere when they were needed, but, but here they are. Um, I'm reminded, uh, have you ever played, had family game nights at your house? And some of you and your families, you probably have those particular individuals who are a little bit more bent on the need to win. And maybe they get a little bit more upset um, when things don't go their way, and maybe just maybe you've had somebody go running away from the game table before because they're so upset. Um, that's how the Ephraimites are. They've got to win. They've they, 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 they got to have it. They, they want it uh, for themselves. So they come with their pride. And, and did you catch what they said to Jephthah? Verse 4, at the end of verse 4. They said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. In the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh, now that, to us, that probably doesn't immediately mean too much. But to Jephthah and to the Ephraim, it's like struck at their core. Remember, Jephthah is this illegitimate child, okay? And they're, calling, they're using this fugitive language. It's like just, like, here, just like stick it in and, and, and twist the knife against Jephthah. It is, it is piercing to him as, as they're striking against him. And they're, 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 this really is derogatory comment about the whole tribe of Gilead, saying y'all are, y'all are kind of illegitimate in general. Y- y'all, are, y'all are nobodies. Y'all live on the other side of the Jordan River. You don't get the good side. You're, you're, on, you're on the east side of the Jordan. There's something less about you. What they're really saying, as one commentator says, is what they're, what they're really saying is you, you're nobodies. But we, we're, we're somebodies. You're, you, you're nobodies. We are somebodies. We, we are, we're Ephraimites. And you know who we are? We, we are the, the, the sons of, Josh, of Joseph. Now, of course, the Gileadites would say, well, we're sons of Joseph too, but they were sons of Manasseh. But who was the one who got the blessing? Who, who was the one of whom Jacob said, you shall be greater than Manasseh, of course, Ephraim. And Ephraim struts it around. Ephraim thinks a whole lot about themselves. And because of this pride, it leads, as we're going to see, to very needless conflict. It leads to a civil war, if you will, break out for that moment. Now, as we think about this, as we think about Ephraimite's pride, we've got to look at our own, we, we need to look at ourselves. Where does pride exist in your, your life? What areas of your life do you feel the need to be puffed up by your own self-importance, you know, where it's all about you. Where is it that you need the glory, the accolades? You know, you need the person coming alongside you saying, good job, you're so good, you're so wonderful. You know, we, 
let's be honest, we all kind of long for that, and we want that so often. We, we so often live on that treadmill of pride. You know what I mean? That, that treadmill of pride, always chasing after it. Never quite getting it. It's only fleeting. There's those moments where we're blown up. You know, like if you think of ourselves as a balloon, where we're, we're blown up, right, with pride, and oh, it feels so good. But then we become deflated so easily, and we just want more, right? We want that to, to come back. And what happens as we pursue pride, as this is this thing that we want, what do we do? We, we find ourselves getting angry or frustrated or depressed as a result of it, you know, thinking things like, well, I should be getting the credit for this. Why are they getting the credit? I did all the hard work. Or feeling as though you're in constant competition with everybody. You've got to be better. You've got to have the better family, the better kids, the better job, the better house, the better whatever that you need, need that. Now, we need to also understand that there's kind of the other side of pride that is still pride. And that is if you live in, in a place, and some of you may be there, where you feel like, well, I don't feel like I'm ever blown up. I feel like I'm always deflated. I don't feel like I'm ever good enough. Understand that's just as much pride because your focus is still in the pr- exactly the same place. The focus is still on your own self-importance, you see. Whether you're, you're inflated big or you're deflated, the problem is really the same. The problem is a focus on self. It's a focus of your own self-importance, you see. Jephthah's words, I want us to hear this morning, should be piercing to us. Why do you fight? Why do you do this? Why why do you run after things like the Ephraimites? Why do I do it? Whose glory, after all, are you really seeking after? Are you seeking after your own glory? Why do you feel like you have to be so important? Maybe, just maybe, maybe just maybe it's because there's actually because of something good that's in us something good in us that we've actually turned completely upside down genesis 1 is true you and i all of us in here we were created in the image of god okay that's a wonderful thing that's a wonderful thing that should bring to all of us a word of encouragement right it says to all of us you are we are somebody's We're creating the image of God. But it's not because of who we are that we're somebody's. It's because of who our great God is, you understand, right? And now if you're here this morning as as a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, as you read on in Scripture, and we could be all over the place, but I'm just going to look at 1 Peter real quick. We learn all sorts of other things about us and who we are if you have trusted in Christ, 1 Peter 2.9, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are somebody, right? That's incredible truths to read. You are somebody, but this isn't said to puff us up. This isn't said to, to, to encourage and to stroke our egos because it's not because of who we are but because of who he is. As we continue reading in, in verse 9, what does it say? Why, why are we called this? Why, why? why so that? So that you 
may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, there's such a greater purpose here. It's not about us. We like to make it all about us, but it's not. It's about him. It's about the one who has saved us, the one who has rescued us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who went to the cross for us. Back to Cool Runnings. We can't forget John Candy, right? When we left off, he was saying to Doris, I I had made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning no matter what. Do you understand that, Doris? He said, no, I, I don't understand that, coach. You had two gold medals. You had it all. John Candy's character shakes his head. He says, Doris, a gold medal is a wonderful thing, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. If you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. You don't expect that kind of truth to come out of a John Candy movie. But anyway, um, as we think of who we are in Christ, this incredible truth that you and I, that we are somebody's, are you enough with it? Without, you know, are, are you enough without any of the other trappings that you pursue in life? All those other things that you go after, are you enough just being who you are in Christ? Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? That's how we're somebody's. It's because of who he is, not because of who, who we are. And you and I, we have this tendency to think that, well, if I could only get that, that's that pursuit of the treadmill. If I could only have that, then things will be better but they never really fill us up, do they? You see, the prideful person, the prideful person never has enough, do they? They always have to have more. But the humble person, the humble person sees how incredibly blessed they are. How incredible blessing, how how incredible the blessings are that come to them in Christ. You see, pride is really, it's, it's, it's misplaced worship. It's, it's worshiping at the wrong altar. It's worshiping at the altar of ourself. And you and I, we, we need to learn to, to know and to see the, that, that our value comes not from these things on the treadmill, but, but they come from who we are in Christ. As long as we look to our own glory, it's going to come up empty like it does for the Ephraimites. It, it keeps coming up empty for them. Right? Here they are in our story. They're back again. Same problem. Needing to be filled up. Needing their, their ego stroked. But Jephthah's the same way, isn't he? He's really a man full of pride too. And that's why he responds in the way that we're about to see. He responds with incredible vengeance. Verse 5. The Gileadites captured the fords of Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over. The men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Yeah, I'm reminded now, I can say this because my mom's like off on a cruise. Don't ask me why she's on a cruise right now, but I know she won't see this this morning. So um, my mom has a way of saying things at times. Um, And you may know people in your life who do similar things. If she's going to Walmart, where is she going? She's going to Walmarts. There's always an S. I don't think it's possible for her to say it without it. 
In a similar vein, a little bit different, if she's going to Dollar General, where is she always going? She's going to the general dollar. She can't get, it's like, it's, it's so ingrained in her, and this is so ingrained in the Ephraimites, they, they can't say that sh- sound for whatever reason. And so it becomes this test, but it becomes a brutal test. You see um, that uh, verse 6, what, what ends up happening to them when they failed this test. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. This is devastation, folks. This is horrible. 42,000 people died. This is tragic. And it's tragic because this is a civil war that never should have happened. And it ends up happening because of people's pride. Ephraim should have been able to rejoice with Jephthah's victory. They shouldn't have felt threatened. They, they certainly should have never threatened him as house. They shouldn't have thrown a racial slur his way. They should have rejoiced in what he brought. Jephthah, similarly, again, we, we see him here failing in his leadership. Yeah, in his speech, he, he does proclaim at least a little bit of right theology. He, he points to Ephraim and he says, the Lord is the one that gave the Ammonites into my hand. The Lord is the one who gave him victory. There's good theology, a little bit, that he's sharing there. But don't miss it, ultimately, what happens here. And, and the result of these 42,000 dead, it ultimately comes out of, out of Jephthah's pride. The appropriate response to people calling him names is not to kill 42,000 people. That's brutal. And yet here we are, and this is yet another judge before us, right? And we hear this, and we hear Jephthah, and how does this make it into Scripture? Sometimes we wonder, and aren't the judges supposed to be like types of Christ? You know, aren't they supposed to point us to Jesus in some way? And if we, if we squint our eyes, and we might have to squint them a whole lot, Jephthah does point us to Jesus in some ways, right? He, he does rescue the people. He does save them from the Ammonites, right? He does, as we mentioned just a moment ago, he speaks some good theology at times, reminding people that it is God who did this, not me, Jephthah, right? So, so there are some, some good things here, but it's not all good. Now, it is interesting, though, if you think about it, he does in some ways even look like Jesus. Now, that might sound really strange. Think of Isaiah 53 as it describes Jesus. The prophecy, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom mid hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's kind of in a way, and I don't know how much we pulled it out, that's kind of Jephthah's life. He was a man who was constantly despised, made fun of, right right there at the end, he, he wasn't thought well of. But he responds in a very radically different way than Jesus does, right? Jephthah's response to this derision is to kill 42,000. Jesus' response, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How thankful we should be 
that our Savior, that this is where, where Jephthah becomes not a type of Christ, but an anti-type, right? He, he's, he's the opposite. His, his, while he may have resembled him in some ways, his response here is totally other and, and totally opposite. How do you respond when insults are hurled your way? How do you respond whenever people come after you? Is your tendency to respond like Jephthah, certainly not killing as many as he does? but maybe killing many with words, many with attitudes and responses and the things you say to others? Or do you respond like Jesus? Jesus, the one who willingly, willingly is despised and rejected by men. Our response should look like our Savior, not like this flawed judge, Jephthah. Now, what's the result of all this pride? Where does all this leave Israel? I, I mean, this is a story just, just filled with it. What, what happens as they continue to, to, to worship at the wrong altar, the altar of self, instead of the altar of their great God? What, what happens? They, we, we continue to see judges as they kind of continue to circle the toilet, if you will, as they seem to be flushed farther and farther down. Look at verse 7. Look at what happens with Jephthah's death. Jephthah judged Israel six years. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Now, do you notice something missing there? Something that we've actually seen up until up through Gideon of the judges, that the typical formula is that what did the judges bring? They bring rest. And the last time we see it is, is, is with Gideon, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. That's the last time we'll see rest in the book of Judges. The other judges ended with that rest for the most part. I think it's very purposeful that the author of Judges suddenly removes that and suddenly it's missing. And as we we read a minute ago, I don't know if you noticed, but Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, we're not going to go into all their details. We, We don't really know that much about them. But we see in each of them a lacking of rest. It's just not there. There's no rest to be found for Israel anymore. I'm reminded, um, you know, my kids, they, because it's the day we live in, they all have their electronic devices. They have their phones or a tablet or whatever. And they, they were gifted to them, right? They're their possessions. But we also, when we gave it to them, we also told them that the, these devices and your use of them is a privilege. It's not a right, <laughs> you know? And, and if you mess up or if certain things happen, that privilege may be taken away for a period of time or whatever, right? And so we've had to experience that in our, in our family. And I think there's something similar going on in here in Judges. Is up till now, God has given them the privilege of enjoying rest. That the judges don't just rescue them, they do, and save them, and repentance doesn't just happen, but, but rest is able to take place. Now, now it's no longer there. Now the substitute, <laughs> what, do we, what substitute do we see but that these judges judged for X number of years? Now that's good, that's providential of God, okay? God providentially and kindly still is giving them judges, but it seems because of their continuing to do what is right in their own eyes, they're not able to enjoy that kind of rest anymore. What exactly that looked like, huh? I don't know, but they lose that precious gift. They've abused the privilege 
and it's taken away. And what's interesting is it's not really mentioned in the book of Judges. It's almost as though it happens. Rest is taken away and nobody really notices. They don't even realize it. But see, they should have. They should have understood what was taking place. They should have heard and understood the call of their God and to know that he was calling them to more than just momentary freedom from oppressors around them. That's what we kind of see in the book of Judges is is they're wanting constant freedom from the oppressors around them and God wants something much greater for them, I think. He wants them to find rest and not just rest in no war and no battles, but ultimately a rest that comes from him. I think the words that Jesus speaks are the same words that God would have spoke to them then. Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He desired rest for them. Not just rest, though, from their enemies, as I mentioned. He wanted rest in a, in a true relationship with him, where they trusted him, where he was their king, where he ruled, and not as they sought to continue to find ways to rule themselves. Now, as we wrap up chapter 12, I think there's something really important that I need to mention. Let me read from Hebrews 11 real quick. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Now, did you notice that name mixed among them? Hebrews 11, this famous hall of fame of faith. Right there amidst it, we see this name of Jephthah. How does his name find its way into Hebrews chapter 11? We don't see much redeeming about him. Okay, he kind of looks a little bit like he does bring some salvation to him. He does have some moments. You've you got to squint really hard, Right? But you see that there seems to be something going on there. He seems to at least understand that God is at work, that it's God that did it. How does Jephthah wind up in Hebrews chapter 11? As I was thinking through that, I read a little um, John Owen. He's an old Puritan guy. His commentary on this, this is what he said. He said, it's not the dignity of the person that gives efficacy unto faith, but it is the faith that makes the person accepted. That may sound convoluted. Owen usually does sound that way. What he's saying is, it's not the works of the person. It's not the stuff that they do that saves them. It's their faith. It's genuine faith. He goes on to say, neither the guilt of sin nor the sense of it should hinder us from acting on faith in Christ when we're called thereunto. True faith, he says will save great sinners. True faith will save great sinners. Now, it may not be abundantly apparent. It may not jump off the page to us in the book of Judges. But it appears as though Jephthah 
even though his, amidst all of his flaws, there was some genuine faith in there. A genuine faith, a true faith that saves great sinners. You see, the, the, the people that are listed in Hebrews 11, they, they're not made there, they don't wind up there because of their extraordinary deeds. I think sometimes we can get mixed up thinking that. That it's because they were so extraordinary that they wind up in Hebrews 11. They wind up there not because of their extraordinary deeds, but because of their extraordinary faith. And not because that faith was, it's not because of the quality or even the quantity of that faith. It's not like it was just so like amazing that you would just be left in awe of it. We're certainly not left, at least in the book of Judges, in awe of Jephthah's faith. But it's a genuine faith. A faith that, that truly trusts in God at the end of the day. A, a faith that, that for them look forward to a Messiah. Now, I hope, maybe even as we think about this this morning, this is a bit of encouragement to you. It should be an encouragement uh, to, to, to all of us that what is needed is, is genuine faith. Even as we find ourselves this morning filled up with things like pride. It's not our fighting away of the pride and ending it and, and killing it in our life, which we need to be about doing. But it's not the killing of it that saves us. It's faith in Christ that saves us. You see, today, as we gather here, the only, the only way that we're acceptable in his sight, the, the, the only way that those words that I read from First Peter a little earlier are true, that, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, the only way those things are true is if we are sinners saved by faith. Not that we revel in our sin, not that we're excited about our sin by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, we need to learn to hate it more and more and take it more and more seriously. But, but to know that we are not saved by our works, that we're not saved because we're good enough. We're saved because of what Christ has done for us. The words of Paul in Romans 5 are so true. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's here. So that moment that we're reminded of how amazing grace is. The reason why, while Jephthah was a sinner, while you and I were, were sinners, even while he was filled with pride, we find ourselves filled with pride. Even when we're filled with such things, even filled with sin, what, is, what does Paul say? Christ died for us. He didn't die for perfect people who had everything together. He died for sinners like Jephthah. He died for sinners like you and like me. But you, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you believe it? Do you know that it's true? Do you know that you are somebody 
not because of what you do and what you've accomplished, but because of Christ, because of all that he has accomplished for us. It's not because of who you are, but who he is. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess that we are so often filled with pride, we're so often filled up and with our own self-importance. We so often bow at the altar of ourself instead of before you. And Father, would you help to convince us maybe even more today and remind us more of who we truly are in Christ. Remind us of what you have accomplished for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Remind us this day that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's a result of that that we are somebodies. We are somebodies because we are united to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to believe the truth of that? And would you help our glory to stop being in ourselves but that it would be in you and that you would get all of the glory, we pray. Pray this all in the matchless name of the one who saved us, Jesus Christ. Amen.